Welcome. I'm Dr. Vinay Prasad. I'm a hematologist oncologist, and I'm associate professor of medicine at the University of California, San Francisco. In my professional life, I see patients, I teach trainees, and I do research in healthcare policy. This is Plenary Session. Plenary Session is a podcast at the intersection of medicine, oncology, and health policy, and you're listening to Season 3. On this week's episode... I'm joined by Aaron Goodman. Aaron Goodman is an assistant professor at the University of California, San Diego, and he's here to talk about hematologic malignancies and transplantation, his specialty. You won't want to miss this discussion. If you like this podcast and want more content, follow me on Twitter at vprasadmdmph. Check out the YouTube channel, vinayprasadmdmph. Patreon backers will get access to the slides for lectures I give on plenary session. Want to hear from us? Email us your question at plenarysessionpodcast at gmail.com. I'm back in plenary session, joined via Zoom by Dr. Aaron Goodman. Aaron Goodman is an assistant professor at the University of California, San Diego. He's a practicing bone marrow transplant doctor and expert in hematologic malignancies. Aaron, it's a pleasure to have you on the podcast. Oh, thanks. I've been listening for a long time, and it's, it's a pleasure to be on your podcast. Ah, well, um, we have teamed up on some stuff recently. Um, we uh, took a close look at um, this this interest in treating multiple myeloma early. As you know, um, if, if treating a cancer is good, treating a precancer that often doesn't progress to the cancer is even better. Got to be even better. Um, why don't you uh, tell us a little bit about this idea of treating smoldering multiple myeloma? What are your thoughts on this topic? Yeah, so for those who aren't super up-to-date on the smoldering myeloma field, so all patients with multiple myeloma progress from an asymptomatic MGUS uh, stage where they just detect, usually incidentally, a monoclonal protein in the blood. And uh, their risk of progression to overt symptomatic myeloma is about 1% per year. Uh, a subset of those will go through this intermediate phase that we call smoldering myeloma, um, which the definitions have somewhat changed uh, uh, over the course, or, or specifically the risk of, of smoldering myeloma. Uh, but basically, the definition right now stands is you have to have uh, 10% more uh, uh, plasma cells that are cloned mm -hmm. on your bone marrow and or uh, 3 grams per deciliter of a monoclonal protein. And then um, this is further divided into by various groups, uh, the, the, the Spanish, the Mayo group, uh, into low or high risk. I will just focus on uh, what seems to have been adopted in the United States, which is the Mayo risk model, uh, which is the 22-20 model, um, mm -hmm. which is 20% or more plasma cells in the bone marrow, an M spike of 2 grams per deciliter or more, mm -hmm. um, or a kappa to lambda or lambda to kappa ratio of 20 or more. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and, and with that, you can divide smoldering myeloma to, to three different groups in. The more of those risk factors you have, the higher uh, percentage uh, will progress to myeloma. And I just want to redefine myeloma, um, you know, to me at least means symptomatic disease and organ dysfunction from, from the disease, uh, renal failure, lytic bone lesions, anemia, uh, distress related to the cancer. Yes. We now have a new classification uh, as of five or six years ago yep. where you can technically be asymptomatic, which to me still is the smoldering stage, but sure. we now call these patients true myeloma sure. uh, if you have... 60% or more clonal plasma cells mm -hmm. in the bone marrow or a capital lambda or, or lambda to kappa greater than 100 uh, to 1. Okay, and that is another controversial issue that we can talk about more. Yes, okay, so this is great. So uh, uh, now I see in my mind the bins. We've got 
multiple myeloma, uh, old school multiple myeloma, where you had to have end organ damage. And that's the myeloma that we grew up with learning in medical school. Then we got new myeloma, which is the expansion to include the skewed free light chain ratio of 100 to 1, those plasma cells, and MRI findings. And now that's called myeloma, even though that wasn't the old myeloma. Um, it used to be smoldering. And to some degree, it kind of still is. And then there's smoldering, and then there's the high-risk category of smoldering. Uh, and then a few years ago, those folks in Spain did a very small phase two randomized control trial looking at lenalidomide dexamethasone versus observation in high-risk smoldering myeloma by the Spanish criteria. And they found not only a PFS benefit, which is what it was powered for, but an OS benefit. But because the trial is a small underpowered study, and because the control arm, when they progressed, they didn't get VRD. They got carfilzomib regimens and regimens that, uh, you know, our, our grandpappy used to give. Um, they got old school regimens. And so that trial doesn't really tell us if treating smoldering myeloma early is better because you have to compare treating early with novel drugs to treating myeloma with novel drugs when the control arm progresses. So I think that's kind of a not very useful study. Um, and then we had the, the ECOG study, which was supposed to be the answer the cooperative group study, lenalidomide versus observation and high-risk smoldering myeloma with a slightly different um, inclusion criteria, different high-risk. Um, and this was had a PFS benefit, which was kind of obvious. Uh, it didn't surprise me there that active drugs given early will have a PFS benefit. Um, but it didn't have an OS benefit because they crossed everyone over without waiting for the OS benefit, without waiting to see. And so that's not going to be very informative either. And I think on this podcast, I faulted the trialists for doing that. So we have this interesting situation where, you know, 20 years ago, we wouldn't have treated these people with myeloma who didn't have end organ damage. We wouldn't have treated smoldering myeloma because we didn't have trials showing that there's a survival benefit from treating early. But now we do treat it, not all of us, but some of us, and they still don't have that data. They still don't have that data. They still don't know. So that makes it tough as a doctor. I mean, how do you counsel a patient in this situation who's probably feeling fine? I mean, by definition, they, they are. Um, how do you counsel them about this decision of should they start treatment early or not with, you know, smoldering, high-risk smoldering myeloma? Well, let's take, uh, you know, the, the most recent recommendations, which is to strongly consider uh, Revlimid for high-risk smoldering uh, multiple myeloma. And again, high-risk by that Mayo criteria, the 20 uh, to 20. Yes. And you're right, that study uh, did show a progression-free survival uh, advantage, um, which is no surprise. We gave active therapy and we prolonged the time until uh, symptoms. But I actually, my interpretation of that study is the second those asymptomatic patients, the second that Revlimid touched their lips and they swallowed it, they not, they progressed, right? I mean, yeah. they got treatment. That's right, uh, yeah. You know, that's how I look at it. So to me, it's a win for the people who did not take uh, uh, the Revlimid. I mean, think about what we're doing in smoldering myeloma. We're giving chemotherapy to delay the need for chemotherapy. That makes no sense. It makes no sense. Uh, it makes no sense. And, and I think we all know that single-agent Revlimid is not going to cure smoldering myeloma. Uh, um, I think I can say that with fair confidence. And this trial will not answer that question. It will never answer, unfortunately, as you pointed out on your wonderful podcast, any meaningful question. It was destined to do so, uh, but it, unfortunately, it, it is not. And I think the – and we can talk more about it and expand upon this. Now that the myeloma community – um, is kind of accepted Revlimid now as the control, the, the defect, what we yeah, need to be doing for our smoldering myeloma yeah. patients. As you can imagine, all trials are building upon this. So, so getting back to what I tell my patients is they're fine, right? If they're not fine, then they have symptomatic myeloma and need yes. treatment. And no yes. one's going to argue with treating symptomatic myeloma. Correct. We've made great strides with that disease. I say, well, you can continue to be fine. And even if you look at the high risk criteria, 
you know, there are many patients at two years who still have not progressed. Now, a lot of them have, uh, but there is a substantial 20, 30% who have not. Mm -hmm. There, you've gone two years without needing therapy, two more years not spending money on expensive therapy. Revlimid is not cheap. Uh, uh, and then furthermore, two more years where new therapies, potentially better, safer, more effective therapies have been developed. I'm going to watch you very closely. I usually, what I do with the high-risk smoldering is I start you know, uh, monthly with labs, which is probably overkill, just to show that there's no really tempo and change in the yes. capital lambdas. Yeah. I think what we know, dynamics is very important. And they're yeah. working on this, the myeloma community, looking at dynamic changes. But if you start seeing that kappa go to 100, 200, 500, then fine, I I'm going to treat. And I'm not going to treat with Revlimid. I'm going to treat how I treat a newly diagnosed multiple myeloma in the United States. And that's with RVD, uh, uh, plus or minus stem cell transplant, uh, if they're eligible. If it's stable, all their labs every three to six months, you know, and patients are, you know, some are anxious, but in, in my clinic, uh, they've grown, they get, they get used to it. And, and I, I promise you it's better than being on Revlimid. And, oh, and that's yeah. how I counsel my patients. I've yet to have one patient. I don't hide it for them. I'm very honest. Uh, I say it's in our guidelines. The Mayo group recommends it. People who've seen way more myeloma than myself. I explain to them my interpretation, like I just explained to you, and they've all been in agreement. There's so many pearls there. Um, I just think one pearl that people don't often talk enough about is the one you highlighted, which is you follow people quickly to get a sense of the tempo. And I think that's the single most underutilized treatment uh, intervention a doctor has, which is to bring someone back pretty quickly and get a sense of where this disease is, how it's changing, what its tempo is. Um, every time I'm in clinic with a trainee, I think the temptation is often they want to make the final decision that day. You know, the first day you see somebody, we're going to treat, not treat. Uh, are we going to treat? Observe. Um, but the truth is, you can always bring them back two weeks, four weeks, six weeks, eight weeks, ten weeks, and bring them back a couple times in that period, and then get a sense of, you know, what does the person really want? What are their desires? What's the tempo of the disease? And I think that's the single most un underutilized thing um, that you, you only learn when you're finally an attending because you have that kind of length of your clinic that you don't have when you're a trainee where it's all, you know, staccato visits here and there with different doctors. So I think that's just a pearl. And I agree with everything you said, which is, you know, if you need treatment, you need treatments, so you need RVD, um, which is the standard of care because it has a survival benefit in a cooperative group study against RD. Um, and um, that's a study that was done in, you know, mostly your U.S. sites with pretty good post-protocol thick care. So that's a pretty solid study. Um, so this is good. So I think we we both see the irony here, which is that you're giving a toxic chemotherapy drug, Revlimid, which has some risk of second malignancy, which is still going to be kind of a question mark, question mark, what exactly that numerical risk is um, in these smoldering patients, because they've all been crossed over at this point. So we'll never get a really good sense of that. Um, and, and you're doing that for somebody who really does not have myeloma and doesn't really feel the sequela of myeloma. It's, it's a tough, tough pill to swallow. Our time is limited. Let me go to the next topic. Stem cell transplant CR1. We talked about this the other day, and I actually agree with you. I mean, um, we have the new study that came out of the French group. Um, and this is the randomized control trial of routine transplant in CR1 versus delaying it at, to a future time when you need it. Um, and at eight-year follow-up, there is no difference in PFS2, no difference in overall survival. PFS1, of course, is better with transplant. You give more drugs early, you're going to get a better PFS. Um, but no difference in overall survival. And with eight-year follow-up now, um, the control arm, a high proportion of them did get transplant in a subsequent relapse, which is, you know, is what it is. But I guess the question is for the patient in your office 
who you're starting on RVD induction therapy. How do you counsel them about, do they have to get a transplant in CR1? Is it okay to wait? How do you think about this question? Yeah, so the, the IFM two, the 2009 study, this was a, a great study done in multiple myeloma. Uh, it's continuing to answer important questions. And I think this, in my opinion, uh, does definitively answer uh, the role of, of transplant in, in CR1. Uh, is it mandatory or not? So I'm a transplanter, and transplanters like performing stem cell transplants. That's what we do. So put food um, on the table. Puts food on yes, the table. Uh, yeah. And, you know, melphalan <laughs> autologous transplant, that's the majority of what we do. Myeloma is fairly common compared to some of our other hematologic malignancies. Uh, you know, what this study does, it uses standard induction that we're using currently, uh, RVD, and, you know, they ran, uh, you know, half got the transplant up front, the other half delayed, and uh, as you stated, the PFS was longer with the high-dose chemotherapy. You know, duh, they got a big dose of chemotherapy, more yeah. drugs. Uh, but it's reassuring with, uh, right, you said eight-year follow-up, um, that um, the patients who were delayed uh, their transplant, uh, granted, many got it, but that's fine. Some will get it at relapse that the overall survival was no different. That's yes. like a, a reassuring feeling for those of us who have been recommending uh, that it's okay to delay transplant. So what I, I tell my newly diagnosed patients is that um, transplant, I, I personally believe, is important uh, and cost-effective uh, in, in the care uh, of patients with multiple myeloma. Um, those who see transplant, as long as they see it at some point during their treatment course, they will get the survival benefit. But it really doesn't matter if you get it up front or you get it later, your total length of life will be the same. I do though, you know, first PFS, you know, some say the most important, some say it matters. Um, you know, I don't think auto plus RVD is hearing a substantial population of our, our patients, but it does offer, uh, uh, in general, a longer first PFS. And it does give the patients, if they value a long PFS on four to five years is the median, um, and relatively treatment free, although they do get relevant maintenance. Of course, yeah. Uh, you're but, gonna you know, feel there was that, a survival yeah. advantage without yeah. also. Yes. So um, that's clear. if they value a, a relatively treatment, you know, relatively free, uh, then I still don't think it's unreasonable to proceed with stem cell transplant in first CR uh, or in first remission. Um, but it's definitely not unreasonable to delay, especially now with COVID uh, at its worth, worst. Um, I do have a lot of patients uh, delaying. I do collect all those stem cells up. That's something you got to do, though, up front. Uh, the stem cells will go bad if they get pummeled with Revlimid and you won't be able to mobilize them. Yes. So I still collect all patients usually after four to five cycles. Yes. And then we either go or not based off, off, off that discussion. I think that's a fair, that's a very fair takeaway from this clinical study. Um, I guess different people tell different stories about what that first PFS means. I've heard people say that that first PFS is very long. We're going to have new drugs available for second line therapy. That'll be wonderful for you. You might want to do it. The alternative it is that if you don't do transplant upfront, you know, in the time before you relapse and require transplant in CR2, there could be some new innovation that comes and that spares you from transplant at all. So, you know, you can tell whatever story you want about the future, but I think the way you summarize it is nice. Um, and I think that, um, you know, it's really sobering that, um, I mean, the real thing that you wanted to see in this study was a big survival benefit from transplant in CR1. You know, I think that's what people expected, um, particularly when you look back at the older studies. Now, that's one thing that has to be said. These older studies that people cite where it has survival advantage, those are done in an era where we just didn't have any of these drugs. And even this study, you know, people got Velcade, people got Revlimid, people didn't get that much Dara and people didn't get, no. didn't, get, didn't get that much Carfilzomib. So one would imagine that these novel drugs, I think if anything, will erode the potential OS benefit of transplant, not enhance. Let's talk uh, about yeah. our favorite topic, Selenexor. Oh yes, our favorite. Good drug or great drug, which choice? Um, you know, 
I, I would say awful drug. Um, I've been accused of being overly critical, and I'm maybe getting a little scared. Uh, you know, <laughs> uh, but no, I, I just think it's a a bad drug in its present form. Yeah, it's um the the what it has going for it is a um is the novel molecular <laughs> the novel mechanism of action, which everyone likes to talk about. Novel Very mechanism novel. of action. Yeah, you you keep. Highlighting the mechanism of action when the efficacy and toxicity are lousy. Uh, that's the way. That's the way they like to do it. Um, I think it's an unusual drug in the sense that I think ten years ago it would never have been approved. It would be considered, you know, too low a response rate and way too toxic. I think when doctors give it, they find that its toxicity is quite formidable and 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 quite obtrusive. And there are a lot of people who've progressed through many lines of therapy who get to sell an Exor and say, uh, "Enough's enough. I, I I don't like selling Exor." I also think that in myeloma we talk. You know, we talk about these last lines of therapy like we don't have other options, but we often have a lot of other options. One, you can cycle back to something you've given before and haven't given in a while. Um, you can go back to a Velcade, go back to a Revlimid. You've got Palm, you've got Dara, you've got Elo. Um, the other option you always have is, you know, you can give someone a bunch of Mel, and if you have extra cells that you've 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 saved, you can give them salvage salvage transplant. You can give them VTD pace. You can give them sort of a platinum-containing regimen, you can give them one of those type of regimens. I think we, we, we think we need a new drug. Sometimes we can go to the oldest drugs we've used, you know, give them, give them MEL-200, give them MEL-160, and then give them some cells back. I mean, how do you deal with it? Let's say you have a patient, you know, we're talking fifth or sixth line, but they're in good shape. You know, they're young, they're healthy, they're in good shape. And let's say you've got, you know, you've got some cells in the bank. Um, what are you thinking about in, in these cases? Yeah, I mean... So, you know, let's give Storm the, the trial that looked at this its yeah. credit, if you want to give it its credit. Basically, it took, it took a very sick population. Uh, most of them were refractory to just about everything. And it gave them single-agent Stellanexor, and, and um, some people had a marginal remission. And when we say remission in myeloma, we always have to remember that that just means that a protein was lowered for a portion of time, okay? There was no comparator. Um, so I think if it's going to be used... The only place right now that it can possibly be used is in that situation where you truly have nothing else to offer. You've informed the patient that this will not, not going to make you feel better, right? No. And we have no data that it's going to make you live longer. It might keep that protein or at best a progressive lytic bone lesion FA for a little bit of time. I think that's what you can honestly uh, tell the patients. But what, what I do, and I know, you know, cliche, yes, you try to, we try to enroll them on a clinical trial, but let's just assume that uh, yeah. we don't have a clinical trial. If they're fit, they're definitely not getting Selenex. Or if they're yeah. truly fit, um, then they can tolerate, you know, these are the drugs that were around like when I was a, a kid, you know, yeah. give them, you know, give them a gram of cytoxin, yeah. give them uh, alkylating agents. And, you know, it, 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 there will be some upfront toxicity. I mean, there'll be some cytopenias, which I think as a hematologist, we're fairly comfortable at managing with good infectious prophylaxis, blood transfusion support. And then you can do a few rounds of them, get their disease under control, um, um, prevent the catastrophic uh, crisis that's about to happen, which Selenex is not going to do. No, it's not. Uh, mm-hmm. And then transition them back to, you know, are they truly resistant? You know, I like to think of, you know, cancer cells as, you know, you know, they, the ones go away that, um, you, that are sensitive to the drug and the ones that stay are the resistant ones. And then you put them on something else, but it's possible, uh, that the ones that, uh, were once sensitive to Velcade have now come back. So yes. it's, it's perfectly reasonable, uh, to retreat, uh, with some of the other agents once you've, uh, gotten their burden of disease down with, you know, I like to use hypercytoxin. I don't, you know, there's no 
comparator data, but you, know, you can even use Ben Demustine. Yeah. Uh, all these agents uh, can work effective. So I have I have not had to use Selenexor. I probably won't. Yeah, probably won't. Probably won't either. I think it's a drug from hell. Um, but I think what you're talking about is something that I don't know if all the trainees really appreciate. But um, you know, when people say someone is len resistant or refractory, that that that's shades of gray. I mean, I want to give some people some examples. You know, back when you know when we were treating colon cancer, maybe 20, 25 years ago, we just had five FU. Um, maybe 30 years ago, 25, 30 years ago. And people would give 5-FU in different ways. You know, we'd give it bolus, we'd give it um, infusional, we'd give it this way, that way. Um, occasionally, you will get a response in somebody who's progressed on 5-FU to 5-FU delivered in a slightly different way. Similarly, when we um, have many cancers where platinum is the mainstay of therapy, like ovarian cancer, even bladder cancer, or even head and neck cancer, they've gone so long between platinum you can reintroduce platinum, and often you will get some response. Um, similarly, with lenalidomide and bortezomib, um, you can give someone len-based regimen, take them off a len-based regimen, give them a proteasome-based regimen, and then what grows out may be a len-sensitive clone. So this clonal selection process is a dynamic, and it's a dynamic process, as you described very elegantly, which is that the thing that that is growing out in the setting of proteasome inhibition may be something that is susceptible to a drug that previously was that the, that the overall picture was previously resistant to so in other words like the 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 the, the len resistant clone grows out now you give proteasome inhibition you kill that clone down but then the 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 len susceptible clone but proteasome resistant clone starts to grow out and you can give it again and and we often find that these patients who are labeled "Quote unquote resistant or or refractory to drugs can have response from those drugs being readministered. Um, you know, again, it's it's a field where there's just not a lot of enthusiasm to do really carefully done clinical trials. There's not a lot of money at stake. Um, but it's so funny that in oncology, when you don't have a drug, you find a way around it, right? For that really fit person who's still got energy, you find a, a solution for that patient using the drugs you have. The moment you get a Selenex or everyone suddenly feels compelled to use Selenex or even though the data is quite lousy, Boston trial is an embarrassment. It's an embarrassment of a study. Yeah. I mean, we've been doing, we've not had Selenex up until whatever it was a year ago. We managed in our fit patients to come up with solutions. So, um, I don't think uh, Selenexor currently has a place in the treatment of myeloma. And as you said, the you know I don't know how much time we have, but the Boston study uh, is an embarrassment, uh, unethical almost embarrassment of a study uh, where the control arm is nothing close to what we use in the United States. And this study was done in some centers in the United States. That's right. And I agree with that. Let's talk real quick about double hit lymphoma, lymphoma, dose-adjusted REPOC. You know... Dose-adjusted REPOC is an interesting thing. It's like the KRD of lymphoma because everyone came and talked a big KRD game. KRD is better, 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 better. Then a randomized trial comes along and uh, KRD is not better. Then they say, well, you know, it's still better in uh, high-risk myeloma. And it's like, okay, well, where's your randomized trial that shows it's better in high-risk myeloma? Oh, we can't do it. There's too few people. Oh, sorry, we're just going to give KRD. So that's the, that's the line there. Now let's go EPOC. Epoch comes along, dose adjusted our epoch. Everyone says it's going to be better than our chop, going to be better. Look at the uncontrolled single center data from NCI, blah, blah, blah. Uh, they do a randomized trial, the CLGB study, dose adjusted our epoch, not better than our chop. Now people say, but, you know, you don't have power to look at double hit. You don't have power to look at PMBL. It's still better for those conditions. And so you say, well, what's the study that shows it's better for those conditions? Oh, sorry, there's no randomized study there. Um, 
it's really interesting. It it's 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 this phenomenon where you can use a more aggressive, more toxic regimen in a subgroup of a disease, even when that more aggressive, more toxic regimen fails in the overall cohort, by claiming you didn't have power to exclude a benefit in your more toxic regimen. It, it's sort of like an inversion of the burden of proof. The burden of proof is on the critic of EPOC and the critic of KRD to show it does not work better in a high-risk setting than it is on the person who wants to use it. How do you think about dose-adjusted R EPOC? Who do you use it in? What are your thoughts? Yeah, so as you alluded to, the, the CalGB 50303. Uh, oh, that's good. That's yeah. hardcore. That I remember the, those numbers. And I have no trial <laughs> with that. I, it, 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 uh, I believe that's it. They randomized... Uh, you know, advanced stage uh, DLBCL to uh, RCHOP versus EPOC, yeah. uh, dose-adjusted EPOC. And um, just so you know, me uh, finishing fellowship, I mean, dose-adjusted EPOC was we would just find any reason in the book yes. to give that yes. extra toposide and that magic confusional therapy, yes. get those those lower, uh, some mucositis while you're at it, and neuropathy. We would look for any reason in the book. The, you know, first we just said double hit, and double hit uh, specifically refers to a MIC translocation in the presence of a BCL2 translocation and or BCL6. Although the more we look at it, the bind, the the translocation partner matters. It seems to really be dependent yes. uh, to be when they translocations with the immunoglobulin heavy uh, locus. Um, but you know that that in retrospective data there is maybe some benefits in pretty lousy retrospective data, but yeah. it's the best we have. And I acknowledge that. So we accepted using it in that traditionally poor uh, prognosis population. But then we started saying, well, let's give it to these double expressors. Double they, expressors, yeah. yeah and and expression is in the eye of the beholder. Double, yeah. Yeah. yeah, They're not double hits. They don't have the translocation. Mm -hmm. They just express mm -hmm. the proteins on their surface, mm -hmm. BCL2 and MYC. Well, what's the expression cutoff? Uh, maybe 40, 50%. Depends on the group looking at it. Depends on the pathologist and how they're, they're measuring it. Mm -hmm. But then we would say, those people do worse. Let's give them EPOC. Oh, they have a little bit of extra nodal disease. Uh, you know, let's give them EPOC. It's in the breast. That's a bad prognosis. Let's mm -hmm. give them EPOC. So just about everyone was getting EPOC before we had a randomized data showing that we were benefiting these patients. Yeah. And as I always tell my trainees and my patients, we do not need a randomized study to tell us that intensifying therapy, uh, will not, uh, we don't, we know it's going to increase toxicity. Yes, exactly. Right. Yes. You don't need a study to show that giving more chemo, uh, more topicides, uh, if there's going to be more toxicity issues, but we do need a study to show that it's helping patients. So they did the randomized study. And lo and behold, it showed no overall survival advantage, it showed no response advantage, and it showed no progression-free survival advantage in a, a well-done study. Uh, if you read the conclusion of the study, I disagree with the conclusion, even though I love the study. They still say, in very specific populations, we don't want to discourage the use of EPOC of because it can be a game, you know. Well, you can't say that. Uh, I mean, for, you know, the problem is, and as I've told my uh, trainees, if I presented a double-hit lymphoma at tumor board, I love my colleagues, but if I presented at the lymphoma tumor board and said I'm giving RCHOP, I would be pretty, people would be critical of me. Oh, but yeah. if you truly look at the data, we know that dose-adjusted EPOC causes more neuropathy, mucositis, infections, for sure, and we have no data that it benefits them. So I actually still don't think it's unreasonable to give RCHOP, and think about it, these double-hits lymphomas are really bad. Do you really think the fix for these double-hits lymphomas is magically some more chemo? I that think hopefully with yeah. some of the novel or better drugs that we're developing by specifics immunotherapeutics that we can we can finally beat our chop but in my opinion our chop is still the standard of care for most patients with diffuse large b cell lymphoma 
Yeah, that's 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 exactly the conclusion I come to, which is that there's a lot of peer pressure to give it in double hit, but there's not a lot of good data. And I guess people forget, I think, the history, which is like in the 80s, late 80s and early 1990s, Epoch was promecytobomb. Epoch, yes. Epoch was, you know, we had different multi-drug combination regimens that people thought were better. And if you compare, you know, 190 people treated the NCI versus the, you know, RCHOP, pooled pooled average, it looks better. And unfortunately, when you test it head-to-head, it is not better. But back when they did those studies, they didn't parse out these tumors into all these little categories. So they couldn't say, well, promisidobom is still better for double-hit lymphoma. Um, if they could, I bet they would, and then they would have said that. I guess, I think it's almost unfalsifiable because like, like right now, what's the data we have? We have retrospective data that shows... Um, if somebody has a true double hit lymphoma and they get an RCHOP containing regimen, we'll agree the outcomes are poor. The curative fraction is maybe 5% at best or even lower than that. I mean, maybe there's no cure from giving those chemotherapy drugs, period. Um, but it's low. If you give them EPOC, you know, those patients are just selected patients. They're treated in like tertiary referral centers. They're fit enough to tolerate EPOC. They pass the EPOC eyeball test. They're not in any way comparable to the historical population of RCHOP. You can't solve it with propensity score. And I haven't even seen anyone try, but I don't think they can um, uh, because the people who do these analyses are not actually, for the most part, very formal epidemiologists. Um, they tend to be people who are clinicians who have different different training in those in those spaces. But I've not, I don't think I've seen anything that's like propensity score matched or inverse probability weighted or anything sort of the modern techniques to try to get compa- comparability. But I think they'll be flawed. You know, I think that fundamentally you're comparing different groups of people, the people who you historically were treated with RCHOP um, and the people who you think are fit enough to take EPOC. So I, I just don't put any credit. At, like, it's not even data to me. It's like, I don't know what it is. It's it's just something you tell yourself to make yourself feel better. It's a story. Um, let me ask you this question. A with big, people with yeah. This, yeah. No, no, go on. Finish I just said people with an inherently bad prognosis in any cancer, it's in our almost blood or training. We want to make sense, give more. Um, um, it, you do feel better. You tell the patient, this is bad. I'm going to treat you with more stuff. And it does feel better. Although when you really think about it, this took me a few years in my training as an attending really to realize this, that, you know, all I know is I'm causing toxicity. I don't know I'm helping. So at least for me, I, I, we have a randomized study now. They did it. So uh, I, I think the question is close. <laughs> we have our answers. Yeah. I think, I mean, I want to ask, end with end with um, the sort of philosophical question, but I guess I think it's interesting to me, which is that, um, you know, I think when somebody looks at oncology from the outside, they often have two very strong positions. One position is, I think, a position that most Americans may have, which is like, you all are given poisons and it's a very tough field. And people always ask me, like, how do you even do it? Like, every day, you know, every one of your patients is dying and how do you even do that? And I want to say, like, whoa, easy. It's not so It's not so dire. I mean, you know, we're curing people, take care of Hodgkin's, non-Hodgkin's. The, you know, we're hitting the ball out of the park with those cancers, um, particularly Hodgkin's. Um, you know, early breast cancer, we're curing a lot of people. In fact, maybe we're overdiagnosing some, but that's okay. You know, that gives, that's good outcomes either way. Testicle, we're hitting the ball out of the park. Um, we really have some substantive improvements. You know, rituximab was amazing. HER2-directed therapy is really solid, at least the first drugs. Um, uh, imatinib's amazing. Um, I would even say, like, if somebody's really symptomatic with myelofibrosis, give them ruxolitinib, that's really good. As much as I'm critical of ruxolitinib's overuse, like in your GVHD, no, just kidding. <laughs> we'll talk about that some other time. People um, feel better uh, for myelofibrosis. Yeah, people feel, feel better. better. Feel that, tons better. Meaningful. Tons yeah. better. And, um, 
And, and now with immunotherapy, we have some cure, you know, melanoma, we're curing some people. I mean, I'm willing to say that now that we have enough data. Um, lung cancer, I don't know if we're curing people, but we're certainly improving survival um, with immunotherapy. Um, okay, so I guess what I want to say is that like the more you practice, you realize that like there are a lot of things that are very efficacious. At the same time, there has long, be, uh, and then the other pole is that everything you're doing is wonderful. And that's really kind of a mantra that I don't think the lay public has. I think like the average KOL has that, and you go on Twitter and it makes it seem like everyone's getting cured every day. And that's obviously incorrect. And I think both, both extreme is harmful. When I started in my career, I think I came in sort of in the middle and over time I've, I've learned and started to, and I've learned very quickly the things that we do that are great. And so I quickly was buying into that. It took me a while to see all the ways in which we screw up. And they tend to be these things that we've talked about here, which is somebody was feeling fine and you thought, you thought you knew, you know, they're feeling fine and they don't have a complaint, but you thought it would be better if you did something and you inserted toxicity there and you never really had proof that you're making them better off. And in situations like that in oncology, we all we often blunder. Like we've had many examples, like the CA125 story in ovarian cancer, many examples where we thought we'd make somebody who felt good better off, and we fucked it up. Because it's easy to take somebody who feels good, and the only way you can go is make them feel worse. And, and whether they have a countervailing benefit is a tough thing. It's not easy. It's biology. Um, so that's a way we err. The other way we err is you take somebody who you know is not going to do well. You know they have, I don't know, treatment-related AML, you know they have poor-risk cytogenetics, you know they have um, double-hit lymphoma, you know they have like plasma blastic or they have something aggressive and bad. And, and, and our default answer in oncology is like just give them more drugs, more treatment, everything. And, and sometimes at the end of all that, you've just like tortured somebody and you've not really improved the outcome. And so I guess it took me a while in oncology to come to that conclusion that there were these two classic cognitive errors that if it's good when you have the full-blown disease, it's got to be better when you give it earlier. And that's a cognitive error because that's not always the case. And that if, it, if they have a bad outcome, even when you give the good therapy, you've got to crank it up a notch. That's another cognitive fallacy because that's, that's not always true. Sometimes it's true, sometimes it's not true, but you need data either way. I guess my question for you is when were you in your career that you grab it, that you started to see these two problems? Because I think you're a very articulate spokesperson on Twitter that these are two problems. So where were you in your evolution that you started to recognize that? It, was, it wasn't until these patients were really truly under my responsibilities and attending, and I'm getting called on everything, managing their toxicities, doing a lot of inpatient attending, seeing a lot of the bad things that we unfortunately see uh, in oncology. And um, it also, not to make you feel better, was listening to some of your work. No, uh, uh, <laughs> no I'm being serious. Yeah. I mean, uh, you know, listening to, following you on Twitter, listening to some of your podcasts, reading your book. Uh, realizing and like you know, I was in that other group and realizing that turned to question a lot of the things that I was doing in oncology just because, you know, experts or colleagues were telling me one thing to you know who am I to say is some junior attending that maybe they're doing it wrong. It feels weird. Maybe my thought, you know, the first things that went through my head were maybe I'm wrong. If they're all telling me one thing. Maybe I'm the one that's wrong. And it took a lot of you know critically learning trials skills that I didn't have when I graduated. Um, seeing toxicity patients to come to the conclusion that a lot of what I was doing was not proven to help. And I do think that the, especially with the expense and toxicity of, of what we do in oncology, we need to know we're helping patients. I, and I think that's just, people are always going to disagree on this. Um, but my conclusion, uh, especially with therapies like maintenance therapies or treating asymptomatic patients, if you're going to make someone feel worse who by definitions, either in remission or doesn't have actual cancer, we need to know for sure we're helping them. You know, and I want to be proven wrong. I, I you know, yes. show me that 
you know, rev them in up front helps these patients. And, you know, I, I still don't think I did anything wrong by not treating them and I'll gladly start giving it. Uh, but I just feel uncomfortable, uh, as you said, taking healthy or asymptomatic patients or patients that are in remission, giving toxicity and expense without knowing true benefit. And once I realize that, it's really easy for me to make those decisions now. Yeah. And I think once you start to realize that you become like a much better doctor, um, yeah. and, and, and there always been doctors who, you know, I, I've met so many senior oncologists, men and women, um, you know, all stripes, all different places from Kaiser Permanente to VA to like community settings to, um, to private practices. And, and a lot of people independently kind of gravitate to this philosophy over years. It, I mean, we all find it different times. I think for most of us, as you say, like it only clicks for us when we're attending, when you have that ultimate responsibility, when you have the responsibility of recommending a treatment and you see a side effect, and then you really have to agonize and say, you know, did I make the right call with the information I had at the time? And I think you put that well, which is that like if a future world comes across and they show that giving KRD, DARA KRD for MGUS improves overall survival, sure, we're going to do it. But the burden of proof has to be on them to show that it does that. You can't just give DARA KRD and say time to MGUS is delayed or no time to smoldering was delayed, which is what I think the companies want you to do because they're going to rack up a lot of charges. And and that's the other bias that all of the that biases we're talking about kind of the classic over-treatment biases, are countered by the industry's presence because they make more money. The more you treat, the sooner you treat, the more you continue, all those things. Um, so anyway, I think it's important to come to this philosophy. And I guess the last thought I had was like, um, I don't know. I mean, it interests me. And recently I got pulled into this a little bit because I wanted to advise like a junior person, like, you know, time is a limited resource. And it's like, you can only focus on what you should think about in your career. Like one is, you know, we're doctors. Um, you got to kind of, I think you got to think about like, what did I say? Like cost, toxicity, invasiveness. Um, you want to focus your energies on things that cost a lot, very toxic, that are invasive, that um, that if you're wrong, um, you know, you're subjecting the healthcare system to costs that insurers are paying, uh, that are being unquestioned, that only you can question because only you have hemonk training. And so I put this in the context of like, you know, all the articles I read about, um, I don't know, some somebody writes some article, they, um, even oncologists do this. They say that like, um, Patients who present with myeloma, who decline all myeloma therapies and pursue um, vitamin C and incense candles, they don't do as well as people who take all the myeloma therapies and they have some curve and they get some paper out of it or some poster. And I want to say, of course they don't do as well because you're giving them a bunch of bullshit instead of giving them all the drugs that actually work. So surprise, surprise, they don't do so well. And I was like, and you're not some, you know, Sherlock Holmes for figuring out that they don't do well when you give them a bunch of things that don't do anything in myeloma, don't even kill one plasma cell. Um, it's very, very simple to point that out. Um, and so my point is that like, if you know things about myeloma, if you know things about surgical oncology, you got to think, apply your critical thinking to your field. Um, because you're the only one who can do it and we really need you to do it. And the more like for every 10 doctors, you get to think the way Aaron Goodman thinks, I think you help, you help a lot of actual people avoid crazy stuff that the momentum of the field is trying to push them into. So I guess, I guess my last question, I guess to make it a question, I guess like if, if you were to advise a hemonc trainee, let's say you got a hemonc trainee and they want to do heme malignancies, which is pretty cool. Um, one of my biases, I really like heme malignancies. I think it's fascinating. Um, they want to do heme malignancies. They want to um, go have a research career. Like what would you advise them to like, I don't know, I don't know, how should they approach their questions, their publications? You know, like we have this Mani who's working with us, who's awesome. Like, how can we can have how can we have more Manis? Like, what would you tell these kids? 
Well, you know, the, 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 it's a double-edged sword because so like for someone like me, what interests me is actually I, I love patient care. Yeah. I love learning from all the patients I take care of, and I love teaching. Um, you know, but what's important if these people want to be academic bone marrow transplanters or leukemia doctors, um, you know, clinical trials and that type of research is important. And, and I'm, I've just become honest with myself. When I started, yeah, I did company sponsor. I still do a few of them. It doesn't, you know, you there are people who do it and they're super important, but you that's not, I, 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 I don't, I don't get as much enjoyment doing that as I do, honestly, teaching the medical students or having the fellow in my clinic. And when I honestly realized that, um, I just started changing my focus. Uh, 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 you know, the problem is when you tell a trainee that they'll always point out, well, Dr. Goodman, you know, I don't have any publications at UCSD. Who's going to hire me? Um, so I, I, I think I don't have a great answer, but you have to maybe do start off doing a little both. You do need to get some work, some experience with clinical trials, experience that. But then really just what you like. I like teaching. I like taking care of patients. I do more clinical work and I do way more. Anytime I get a teaching opportunity, I honestly, uh, the residents now know this. They ask me all the time for a report and the fellows. I just say yes, and I make time out of that. And if you make and if you make yourself unique in that way, the university they are starting to recognize. They're like, hey, this Dr. Goodman's a really good teacher. Mm-hmm. Um, he's getting good reviews, and they're starting to offer me more opportunities with that that count just almost as much as is research. So I, I think that's the best advice can give. Truly, do what you. It's it's cliche hearing myself say this, but do what makes you happy. Yeah, no, and that's well don't put. Just be I a mean, clinical yeah. trial is because that's what you think will make you happy or get you all the publications. Um, I mean, it definitely will get you publications. I mean, it's let's be honest. I, I do clinical industry sponsored trials. And I'm part of one. They send you an email and they go, "Are you interested in doing this?" And I go, "Okay, this sounds like a good treatment for my patient." You help enroll patients, and then they write the thing, they do the data analysis, and then your name gets on the thing. I, I'm part of that, I, uh, but. I don't really feel great about that other than the fact that maybe I got my patients access to a good, good therapeutic fit. That I feel good about, but the rest I don't. Um, as you said, we're working with an awesome fellow, Manny. I mean, take a disease you're interested in. You're going to find flaws in how it's treated. You're yes. going to see it in your clinical practice. And then you ask yourself, how can I maybe measure this and show that this is actually a true problem and not just something I'm seeing? And then once you show that, then ask yourself, well, how maybe can we fix this? And then you can go from there and you can come up with many ideas. Uh, that, that you nailed it in like two things. I think that you nailed it. One, you you got to ask yourself what you want to do. And for you, the passion is teaching. And to be honest, that's like one of the things that I actually enjoy the most. Um, whether or not people enjoy learning from me is another story. But I mean, I enjoy telling them what I think about things. Um, and to be honest, I view this as an extension of my enjoyment of teaching, making a podcast that probably mostly trainees listen to. Um, uh, I, I I believe from some feedback I have, um, um, and, and practicing doctors, um, and and doing you know those kinds of those kinds of things. Um, and then the other point I think you make that's really what good is that yeah, when you have a field you like. Um, your intuition, like, you're like, oh, well, why do we, like, every time you get that first question, like, well, why do we transplant every uh, T-cell lymphoma patient with, you know, such and such? Uh, You know, why do we uh, do this maintenance and these, and then you you go on up to date and you're like, and it's like, um, and like, studies show that doing this uh, delays the time until the next treatment. And you're like, okay, but do they live longer? And you're like, there's no benefit shown in this study. However, it was unable to look at that, blah, blah, blah. And then you start to ask yourself, and then I think you just have to like run with those questions. And like, I think the temptation is to think, Oh, I'm junior. 
I don't know enough. I must not know why. It must be. It must be right. I must be wrong. So I don't want to admit, show other people that I'm wrong and and don't know the answer. So I'm just gonna, you know, play along. But I think the answer is honestly, when you look hard enough, you're like, oh, there's actually a real tension here, a real debate that people aren't really openly discussing. Um, we've fallen into one thing mostly by historical accident, and like I think about our paper, you know, you talk about like. If trainees want to write something, I think they should check out what we wrote, persistent challenges with treating multiple myeloma early. It's in blood, which is good. I was actually, and you and I were both kind of surprised. Very, that blood, surprised. very surprised blood took it. We're, blood, we're surprised blood took it. And and this is a paper very simple. It's called Persistent Challenges in Early Myeloma. So all of the things we talked about in the beginning of the conversation, we flesh out, we add some more stuff. And we say that these are open questions in this space. And... Um, and I think it, it it connected with at least at least the people at Blood um, who who thought about it and 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 and, and reviewed it and edited it. Um, and I think it'll connect with other people. And I guess I recommend that you find your own I don't know the, your own thing that is a pebble in your shoe um, from radiofrequency ablation for localized hepatocellular carcinoma to why are we using pertuzumab in low risk HER2 positive early stage breast cancer where the benefit is minuscule and the cost is massive. Um, you find that and then you, you, you probe it and you're right about it. Um, and I think I, I find like the blood paper we wrote, I'm like way more satisfied with than like, you know, most things I did this month. Last thoughts no, for you, Aaron Goodman. No, I said, yeah, I mean, right. We, you reached out to me and we, you could see that I was troubled with a lot of what we were doing in the treatment of, 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 of smoldering myeloma and then this uh, myeloma that is asymptomatic, but we call myeloma based off the <laughs> right. and, and, you know, I, I hadn't done a deep dive. I did it. We, I looked at all the stuff and I was like, man, this data is not so great for this. And yes. we just put in a little editorial. You know, I learned in the process. And um, me too. yeah, I think it will hopefully reach out to people. I had some people already email me. And, um, you know, yeah, it's not a research publication, but it's a publication. It shows that we've critically thought about this and it's opening up, uh, you know, new avenues. And we're meeting... As you said, we're working with an awesome fellow, KU, who reached out to us, who shares similar, and we're yeah. expanding. And I, now I think we have a lot of good stuff in store that just really happened over the last three to six months. Yeah, and it's been a, it's been a lot of fun. We had in Twitter, yeah. which is amazing. Exactly, it's mostly, and that's the other thing. It's mostly because yeah. we saw each other saying things that we all have been feeling on Twitter. I saw you saying some things that I've been feeling and really liked them. And I think Monty did too. And 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 yeah. that's how we all came together on this topic that. Um, Maybe we're the only three people interested on Earth, but at least we found uh, each other. <laughs> uh, the editor liked it. Someone the liked editor it. So, liked you know, it. Hopefully uh -huh, we'll reach out uh -huh, and uh -huh. if I people think... disagree, I would, I, I'm all about debate. Maybe I'm wrong about something. I, I'm the first. You show me and we can have a, a discussion why some of my thinking is wrong and we can. I'm happily to, to discuss it. I love a good debate too. But yeah. if you debated on Twitter, this is how it would go. First thing they'd say is, Aaron Goodman, you don't see patients. You're like, well, actually I do. You don't see myeloma patients. Well, actually I do. And you're like, oh, but you're not, um, you're not, you don't work at an academic center. I do. And you're like, oh, th th that's the classic Twitter debate. The credentialism yeah. 101. Um, uh, okay, Aaron, this has been a pleasure to talk to you. Yeah. I'm glad we're able to do this. Um, uh, I will, I will give you the last word. No, so 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 thank you for having me. And again, just to try to reiterate some of those things, my I think if you had to summarize, you know, my beliefs over the last few years, we shouldn't be treating smaller myeloma. We should not be using Celinex or yet until we have more data. And, and yes, go go after some of your your passions. If it's teaching, go after that, and you'll see where things take you. That's well put. And I and I wanted to talk about Belantamab, but I couldn't read oh. I couldn't read my notes here of, about it, uh, so I couldn't I couldn't talk about it. Well, that next could time, be next another time. Uh, another discussion. Another discussion. Thank you, Dr. Goodman. You've been listening to season three of Plenary Session. 
Plenary Session is produced by Kiana Klossner. Music by Ian Straley and Audrey Tran. The views expressed on Plenary Session are those of whoever said it and no one else. Plenary Session is not medical advice. Follow us on Twitter at plenary underscore session. Until next time.